Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I'm here with Tara Burton, a journalist, a theologian, and a novelist. Tara wrote two novels, uh, Social Creature and The World Cannot Give, which just came out. And she's also the author of Strange Rights, which is a book on New Age religion. She's a very thoughtful person, and it's an honor to have her here. So welcome to Meditations with Zohar, Tara. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. You are a theologian, and you're also a novelist and a journalist, and I would say an anthropologist. I'm curious to know how you relate specifically to the theologian in the work that you do. Well, I, that, that's sort of where I started out. I, uh, I trained as a theologian, uh, trained to be an academic theologian, um, was in grad school for that, did my doctorate in that, and kind of didn't exactly expect to be um, leaving academia, but, but realized it was um, what I wanted to do increasingly, and, and that I wanted to sort of write for a broader audience. But I think that curiosity, that interest in what do people believe, why do they believe it, and also how do belief systems fit together to create a kind of holistic, unified picture of the world was something that really stuck with me from doing theology. And, and the, the program I did was a kind of systematic program. It was not confessional, but it nevertheless involved the kind of fitting together of how to you know, within the Christian context specifically, like how does a view about God and a view about nature and a view about the body kind of all fit together to create a picture of the of, of the world uh, as it is, as it should be? And sort of how do other people's kind of holistic pictures of the world similarly fit together? And eventually I, I kind of left the uh, very small corner of 19th century uh European literature and theology that I was doing my doctorate in and moved into writing about the contemporary spiritual landscape, about the spiritual but not religious and the, the religious nuns or whatever term you want to use. And what I was particularly interested in was sort of unpicking uh, an implicit metaphysic, an implicit ethic um, and saying, you know, is there within this kind of eclectic mismatch of different uh, spiritual practices and identities and rituals, is there kind of at least a strand or a trend that we can we can talk about as a sort of contemporary theology? And the case I make in, in my book, Strange Rights, is, is that there very much is. I love the book, Strange Rights, and I was particularly taken with the personal voice that you wrote it in, even though it is indeed a scholarly book. And I'd like to hear more about Tar the person. And do you have a theology yourself? Kind of what's your own take or alternative to what you diagnose? Or is it a kind of self-diagnosis? I, I, I do. I think everyone sort of has a theology. Um, the, the process of strange rights sort of took me back to organized religion. Uh, I was raised a kind of 
nothing-y, Christmas and Easter-y, but also half-Jewish-ish, um, kind of Episcopalian-Jewish hybrid, um, which was, you know, with, with, with very much a sense of like, be a good person and, you know, miracles probably didn't happen, but maybe they did. Um, and, and my study of theology was, was largely, um, intellectual interest and probably a little bit of vague hunger. Um, but I would not have said until my mid twenties that I was sort of a practicing, uh, Christian by any stretch of the imagination. I was, I, I certainly, uh, particularly living in New York city in my, my twenties, um, as I was finishing up grad school, kind of semi-remotely, um, I, almost everything in the book uh, I've, I've been involved in uh, fandom and, and, and witchcraft and wellness, a um, little bit of techno-utopianism. And I think the, the process of both exploring these different worlds and, and often knowing and, and caring deeply about people in these worlds uh, somehow counterintuitively brought me back to Orthodox confessional faith. And now I'm a sort of confused Episcopalian uh, of the Anglo-Catholic aesthetic stripe. And I, I go to an uh, Episcopal church here, here where I live. So, so in some ways, I, uh, there's been no conversion and no change. I'm still, well, I was born sort of Episcopalian, and now I'm just Episcopalian, and it's not really a sort of um, about it. You write about these subcultures with great compassion and, and non-judgment, I would say, for the most part. There's a real sense of empathy and intimacy especially with the sense of their pursuit of a, a human need. At the same time, the book, Strange Rights, does have a critical edge insofar as, as I take it, you, you see a lot of these needs as being kind of preyed upon by toxic elements in the culture. You know, charlatans, you use the, the term charlatans, but you could also add on to that just corporate culture and Let's we use another word, narcissism, in a sense, right? This sort of religion of the selfie. So I I can see that, and I'm wondering though, at the level of let's say ethos or doctrine, what in your view makes organized religion or Episcopalianism in your personal case better? <laughs> and I like what's your and I I I guess I'm gonna this is perhaps a self contradiction of of terminology, but. What would be your pitch or your invitation, to use a less sort of markety term, to the people in the book to consider organized religion? Unfortunately, I can't say why it's better. The reason I think it's better is that I think it's true. Um, and I think it's literally true. And, and what I can say is that um, I do think the truth claims matter. And I think that one of the reasons that kind of particularly mainline Christianity, but the sort of cultural Christianity that we might have seen in, in the 50s and 60s is in decline is that at a certain point, um, it, it kind of suffers from the the same issue, like one would say, that, that some of these sort of religion of the self, uh, contemporary um, religious phenomena suffer from arguably, which is that there are... Um, the absence of truth claims, I mean, ultimately is a religion, a set of, you should do these things because it's like better for you personally. And it doesn't really matter if you believe them exactly. It may be true, maybe not true, but it feels true. And the purpose of it is to kind of have a kind of holistically integrated life full of inner peace. And I think that there's a model of that. Uh, that's more individualistic and a more model of that that's like slightly more societal, you know, will our community function in this way? Um, but in both cases, I think when the focus is on 
what personal need can religion serve? Uh, what, how can I live my best life through picking the best religion? I think once we're thinking like that, we've already lost. Um, and I think that's something um, that that Christianity does as well. Or I think at its best is to say, this is how we believe the world actually is. This is this is what we think about God who made the world. And we think that, you know, Jesus, liter- God literally became man. And, you know, you can accept or reject those truth claims. And they're, they're quite outlandish. And I see why people would reject them. But at the same time, I think the, the premise is that if the world were created by a loving God, like this is how, this is what happens next. This is how we respond to that. This is the proper response to these facts about the world. And I think that without a kind of robust affirmation of that, a sense that this is not, this is an explanation of something greater than ourselves, outside ourselves, rather than merely a mechanism for like personal flourishing. Um, you can't have a religion that, that goes beyond, in the end, um, individual fulfillment. And uh, the sort of, the alternative is to have a religion of pure individual for fulfillment um, and say, you know, this is just about living your best life. And actually that's, that's kind of where we are now. I think that the, the predominant cultural ethos when it comes to the transcendence is always in the service of this kind of personal self-fulfillment. And that's what I'm suspicious of. Three of the academic theorists that use in the introduction to strange rights to kind of frame your discussion of religion, Clifford Geertz, Peter Berger and Emil Durkheim, all of them in their own way make religion very much about the human realm and the, let's say, for Geertz, it's the symbolism or the meaning. For Berger, it's the sense of purpose. And for Durkheim, it's this collective effervescence. And you, you, you use those concepts to sort of show an expansive view of what religion is in America. But in a way, aren't those frames the very frames that have led us <laughs> down this path of self-serving religion? Like, why even use them as theorists if actually implicit in all of them is a bracketing of truth claims? Well, I think that the ways in which kind of religion functions socially, which is to say the ways in which we interact with stories about the world, um, is is kind of a separate question from whether or not they're true. And I think people operate on false or incorrect assumptions about the world kind of all the time. Um, and that still that sort of doesn't stop them from being assumptions that are sort of deeply ingrained in how we live. So the question of how are we, let's say, existing as a culture? How are we, what are the stories with which we are in dialogue? Uh, what are the ways that we think about ourselves in relation to the world, ourselves in relationship to one another? Um, one can be, if there is a kind of transcendent truth out there or there are transcendent morality, there's transcendent morality out there, like one could very easily be right or wrong. Uh, but when it comes to talking about or diagnosing a question of contemporary culture, I think it's about, it sort of behooves us to say, how do these these things work? How do, how do our assumptions work and interface with our actions and interface with the creation of a cultural language or mythos? So, so in that way, I think that the, the definitions that I, that I work with, which are about what is the role that religion plays in human life or religion-like entities play in human life, 
um, because the question I want to answer is, how did we get here philosophically, theologically? Uh, if I were writing a book, uh, let's say Christian theology and apologetics, that would not be um, the strategy I would take. I would um, not necessarily say like, this is, this is, uh, Christianity is good because you can do X, Y, and Z with it, or it, it, here are the rituals and how they will enrich you personally. Um, but I think it's a useful framework for a work that is primarily cultural criticism. Are there any religious social scientists that you hold up as a model? Because I find it quite striking that on on the whole, most social scientists who are very good at describing how things work are themselves non-believers or at least skeptics. And they also seem to have a prejudice of, for the most part, believing that they can be objective and diagnose everybody else without turning the the camera on themselves and asking in what ways they are a function also of the phenomena they're describing. Yeah, I suppose uh, Charles Taylor doesn't exactly count as a social scientist. Um, but I, I'd say that the the sort of influences I have that are thinkers of faith tend to be people like, like Alistair McIntyre or Charles Taylor, who are sort of in the philosophy, historical space um, and coming at the question of religion from, from that perspective. But I think even then, and, and certainly in, in works like, like, like Charles Taylor's A Secular Age, there is a, an attempt to kind of diagnose what exactly this religious impulse or set of impulses is and what it does and how kind of cultural change or historical change can also be the record of changings of ways that we interact with this, this set of stories and ideas and questions. And I think, I think looking to a kind of tradition of, of doing that kind of history was very much um, part of strange rights as Genesis, as it were. Why are there not more Alistair McIntyre's and Charles Taylor's, or is that just an unfair sentiment, a kind of sample bias? Read Plow Magazine. There's plenty. Um, I, I um, that's my that's my pitch. But I I, I, I will say I, I think that there are there are definitely people in often religious spaces, but not exclusively, who are interested in that kind of work and doing um, that kind of work. I think it's a shame that the kind of let's say moral realism one might associate with a, a Taylor or McIntyre is. Often when it is found now, there is a little bit of a divide between like more explicitly like Christian uh, spaces, publications and a kind of broader media landscape where those things are absent. And I I think that I I certainly would like to see um, whether or not from a religious perspective exactly um, more conversations about well, what does it mean to, to, to value freedom? What does it mean to, to say that we want to live our best lives? And, and certainly those kind of conversations are happening, but those are the, the points at which I, I am most interested is, you know, how do we, we deconstruct the religious and theological and metaphysical and ethical underpinnings of this ostensibly secular society that I would argue isn't secular at all. It's just relocated what we sanctify and how we think about um, the purpose of the human good. Are you a pluralist, however you want to define the term? Because 
one concern that I think a lot of secular people or quote unquote liberal liberals have about religion or religious fundamentalism, uh, realist claims for truth, is that if you believe it passionately and you believe you have the truth, why should you be tolerant of competing truth claims? Why should you tell people that they're allowed to express their alternative views when you believe that they're sinners or pagans or idolaters or whatever it is? So do you have a an argument for or against pluralism? Sure. I, I'm, I think I'm very much on the pluralist side. Um, and for what it's worth, I mean, my own Christianity is, I'm sure, to some uh, indicative of a squishy modern age. It's a sort of quite politically progressive, you know, queer affirming Episcopalian church, which sure, many, many sort of traditionalist Christians would say, well, she's already kind of gone down the rabbit hole of liberalism. Um, but my answer to that would be... Um, the, the very faith that I think is true and that I personally espouse, which is ver- a faith of sort of astounding uh, humility and the constant reminder that we are we are deeply wrong all of the time. Um, I can't I, I do think that profound, not just sort of toleration, but love of one's neighbor, uh, respect for and awe of the other of other human beings does demand as a kind of moral good um, being really humble about what you think you know and understanding the kind of ways in which I believe all human beings tend towards, strive towards the good. And so while I would affirm kind of robustly my belief in the literal truth of the resurrection, to me that absolutely does not lend itself um, through any good stretch of theology to the kind of uh, Christian integralism, for example, or a passion for an authoritarian Christian regime, I think, you know, but I am passionate about and perhaps uh, not tolerant of um, sort of economic and political systems that oppress the poor, say. And I think that insofar as I think that my philosophical and religious convictions are things that I ought to live out personally and that ought to be um, advocated for in political life. Um, I do think that there is a clear connection, but I, but I think that insofar as there, that pluralism is part of that, it's not because I don't think that there is a right answer or that one can't make truth claims about God, but rather that um, it is right and good to respect the dignity of the human person. And that includes being very open to the fact that I might be in ways of interpretation or in ways of broader truth wrong. And so uh, no integralism for me, I'm afraid. Would you live differently if you didn't believe the things that you hold to be true? Both yes and no, because I'm very, very stubborn. I think that if I genuinely fully could not believe anymore at all, uh, and also sort of not, not just lost my faith at an emotional level, but like lost my faith that this was even, that there was a good or that this was the good. Uh, well, first of all, I'd be plunged into a great deal of despair. And then I think I would become uh, sort of Nietzschean. I think that in the absence of a belief in certain kinds of transcendent goodness and morality, a quite narcissistic approach to life, uh, whether that be uh, sort of a Nietzschean will to power 
or the kind of anodyne best selfism you find in wellness culture is uh, an internally consistent and plausible way of living. Um, I'm not sure I could, I'm not sure I personally could do it because I think that my, my, even if I lost my faith, I'm not sure if I could lose my kind of sense of a morality bound up with that faith. Perhaps I could. Uh, I don't, I don't want to speculate one way or the other, but I do think that um, a certain kind of nihilistic hedonism does make internal logical sense if there is no meaning in the world anyway. Alistair McIntyre and Charles Taylor are both Catholics. There is a, an argument, and I find it somewhat persuasive, that Luther is a turning point towards modernity and towards the trends that you describe in your book as the kind of the cult of the self, because Luther bypasses external authority and in a sense enshrines lived experience as, or conscience, to use his term, as the basis for my moral compass, as opposed to, let's say, a pope or an infallible father figure, if you will. Now, in in Francis Fukuyama's telling, there's one more turn still because at least Luther was skeptical of conscience insofar as he thought we we're fundamentally sinful. And Rousseau is really the, the villain because he tells us that everything we think and intuit is good and society and anything society tells us otherwise is bad. Nevertheless, there is an, a way in which Luther kind of is a halfway house or stepping stone, gateway drug, whatever, choose your metaphor, to Rousseau. And so you are not a Catholic. How do you how do you think about that narrative? What role does Luther play in it for you vis-a-vis the Protestantism that he engenders? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you say halfway house modernity. I say a happy medium. Um, that's, um, I, I, I have to say, you know, I, I am enough of a kind of, Catholic adjacent Episcopalian to be aesthetically drawn to uh, and often emotionally drawn to the certain kinds of certainty and a promise of a certain kind of submission that Catholicism in particular allows. But I'm very much and and very resolutely not a Catholic. Um, And I do think, and again, this is speaking purely personally now rather than intellectually, because I don't, um, I have great, I have many friends who are Catholic most of my friends, uh, well, a good chunk of my friends. Um, but I do think that for me, speaking purely personally, um, as perhaps as a good, as, as a Protestant, I am, as a modern liberal Protestant, I want to do, um, there, both, uh, both things are good. There is a good to our ability to live in common, live a common life and submit ourselves to, um, to certain, you know, to right and just authority to one another in community. Um, these are, these are, these are goods. Um, but it is also, I think, upon us, especially in a, a world where society is often broken and where often unjust to be in a position to, listen to and enshrine not our own um, 
our own desires, but certainly our own conscious. And I think, and, and this is a sort of the theological place that I come from, that we are divided beings, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And we have with our reason, with even our longings, a kind of tendency toward the good. And that we are broken sinners whose faculties of attention, of reason, of perception, of love are all warped and perverted both by sin and by a society in which we live. And so we cannot purely rely on our own uh, selves either because we can we can no more trust ourselves than we can our community on that front. And I think that my sense at least is that, and particularly in the Episcopal tradition in, of which I am part, that the uh, there's a sense of check and balance almost um, and I, I, I always think moderation is not necessarily aesthetically very interesting, um, which is which is says nothing about its moral qualities. Um, but I do think that both saying, you know, there is a good to human freedom and human dignity and the self. And there is also a good to submitting that self to something higher and also to sort of to and within community that is necessary for um, a religious life to flourish. And I, at least speaking personally, I think that if I ever crossed the Tiber, which I, I have considered, um, I, I think that it would, it would push me in a, in theological directions that mm, I don't think would be right. And, and that's to say, that's not again, a statement on the Catholic church, but only of what it would be for me to become a Catholic. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link kamatir.com Zohar to get $20 off your first order. One of the cutting edge and, in a way, contrarian theses of your book is that we're not getting more secular. We're getting possibly more religious in a certain sense, or at least the same level of religious, but we just don't have the right lens for understanding that because we have to use this new lens that you propose, which is people of remixed religion. And once you look at people as remixers, uh, all, all of a sudden, the, the the terrain looks different. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about remixing as a distinctly modern or American phenomenon, because the sort of classicist in me looks at the thesis of remixing and thinks, "Well, gosh, we've been we've been remixing for as old as time, often with great effects." Um, you know, Hellenistic Judaism re- remixed Greek culture and and the Bible. Uh, Maimonides remixed you know Arabic and Greek philosophy with with Judaism. That was awesome. Like sort of every golden age throughout history has been a time of remixing, and doesn't strike me as modern in the in the sense that you're describing. So what makes modern remixing different than sort of the age-old hybridization that religion has always been? Sure. Um, So I agree with you entirely that remixing uh, itself is nothing 
uh, particularly new. There have been sort of syncretic practices going on as long as there's been religion. Um, that said, I think that what contemporary remixing does, which is to say American contemporary remix practice, is to say the purpose of religion is to work for you and to optimize your life and to enshrine um, the notion of the self's picking and choosing according to its desires, predilections, uh, and affinities as being an inherent good. So this is not just like a practice that kind of gets absorbed um, consciously or unconsciously by groups of people in a particular place and time. This is very much a conscious, like, you, consumer, um, decide how to fill your Amazon cart. What products are you buying? And that this is not simply a tendency, but is often like explicitly affirmed by wellness culture or best self-ism um, as a, a kind of mini ideology. Um, and I think that, that that both the individualistic focus on the individual remixer rather than sort of syncreticism as a broader practice and also the sort of codification of that and the ways in which this is sort of explicit rather than merely implicit render it distinct. And it, I think it's particularly distinct as a product, not just of America, although I argue in my book that it is distinctly American, but also as a very much a post-internet phenomenon. It is the it directly downstream of a culture, of a cultural context um, in which we are kind of primed to primarily interact, primed in all senses, um, to interact with the world as uh, consumers and to see the kind of information and uh, communication that is so central to our worldview as something primarily that is kind of fitted to our needs through various algorithms. Maimonides, when he took up Arabic philosophy, wasn't thinking, how can this make my life better? How can I express my truth? He was in pursuit of the truth and in good faith believed that if that was to be found from the pursuit of philosophy, then one should pursue it in that way. So I, I do take your point. Why do you think we've abandoned truth? Sort of why do why why, why have we replaced truth with with selfhood? And given that it's the reality for so many people what are we to do about it? Because you're in the minority, uh, especially as a young person, someone who's saying, I do this because it's true. But institutional builders and leaders, if they want to reach the youths, they will face a hard choice, I think, between speaking the language of the youth, which is this is good for you, Versus just saying this is the truth and then, okay, maybe they have more integrity when they, they frame it that way. But those people are going to continue to pursue witchcraft and uh, Jordan Petersonism and, and you know, the, the many phenomenon as long as soul cycle, as long as the pastors and the rabbis and the imams are saying, like, this is the word of God and that's why you should do it. Well, I think that there's, again, uh, a happy medium. And the way that I, I'd frame it is, is this. I think there are very good reasons to be suspicious, not of truth, but of truth claims. Um, and I think, you know, we, we think about the, the sort of enlightenment following however many bloody centuries of wars of religion. You think about the kind of political context of sort of certain 
liberal development. And, you know, there's a very, very important thing here, which is like, how can we stop people from killing people? And that seems to be like an unmitigated good. And I think any any kind of knee-jerk critique of liberalism that overlooks that is being kind of slightly reactionary for the sake of being reactionary, I would say. And I think that the question then is how you, there are, there are reasons to be suspicious of truth claims and particularly reasons to be suspicious of the kind of truth claims over which uh, a person would kill another person to, to be perfectly sort of blunt and frank about it. And the question then becomes, how do we robustly uh, affirm truth and say that like without turning truth claims into kind of a mechanism of of destruction. And I think that one one way of thinking about it that I certainly find helpful is to to think about epistemic humility as something very different from uh, relativism. So to say, you know, I I believe with all my heart that this thing is true and I live it out as best I can and yet it's not that sort of my rights stop here, but that I am I am a flawed and fallible human person, and the limits of my understanding must be uh, they must be somewhere, and certainly be. I think one could be suspicious of truth claims and not be suspicious of truth, and one can think about um, pluralism as well. There's no real truth. Who can say so? whatever and think and there's a way of thinking about it as at a certain point I'm a I am a fallible flawed human person and my knowledge of the truth will always be somewhat limited and how can we live together well and lovingly even um without negating either truth as a good or sort of the dignity of human life and freedom as a good. And I, I, I actually like the the talk of, of goods here and that language, because I think that there is something, again, between personal self-fulfillment and the word of God as something external to human life altogether. Um, I think it is possible to talk about the good life, a good life, a life lived well, not as a means of individual fulfillment, but as actually like reflecting some purpose that we have as human beings. Uh, and then I think I think that to, to just sort of say truth on the one hand we have it's the word of God and do it because God says so and like if it feels bad so what God wants you to suffer and on the other hand to say just do whatever you want and and live for your desires and there's no God out there to repress you um, I think that there's got to be some way of saying there are certain things that are that are good in themselves that are sort of morally objectively good. And I, I think of, you know, fellowship and community and friendship and these kind of um, slightly idealistic way of talking about phenomena is saying these aren't just like things we need to tick a box in our self-actualization journey, but things that are just good in the world. And I think having that kind of sense of one could call it moral realism, um, even if we don't yet talk about the broader metaphysics behind it becomes a way, a, a useful sort of way in. And I think that a church, for example, might well use the language of, of you know, of the good without, or when, of the good when communicating with people who might not be willing to say like, 
yes, God became man and died for our sins. That might be like a bridge too far, but I think the language of human flourishing, of what does it mean to flourish? What does it mean to live the good life and make those kind of philosophical questions, raise those philosophical challenges um, in order to perhaps destabilize or encourage questioning of a life that is just about individual desire. So maybe philosophy. There we go. Philosophy is a great way for uh, the church to communicate with the secular world. I think that's that's where I've come down on. Let me defend the yogi for a minute. And I, I admit I do practice not sort of regularly, but I have found a lot of benefit from yoga, uh, at least the Americanist version of it. Um the yogi doesn't say, I'm doing this because it makes me feel good or look good, though many do say that. They also say, or some of them say, that when I am more calm and more mindful, I am also therefore able to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better coworker, and so on. There is a, there is an argument for human flourishing, and I don't see why a person couldn't then apply that to um, you know, when I buy Gwyneth Paltrow's products, it allows me to be not just my best self in the narcissistic sense, but also my best self in the altruistic sense. W- what's wrong with that? Or maybe there's nothing wrong with that. Um, wh- why, why does that not also satisfy a threshold of moral realism? I, I think it can, actually. I mean, I, I have, I, uh, I, I'm certainly not anti-yoga. I'm more dubious about goop, but you know, will, willing to be converted on that front. Um, if if someone's got, you know, uh, the story of, of, of moral realism through Jade Eggs, I'm like all ears. Um, I do I do genuinely think that this is a phenomenon, not just about, let's say, certain practices. And of, of course, you know, yoga is a particular practice that is both embedded in a different religious and spiritual tradition and also has a kind of very specific American capitalist instantiation. So, so I, I mean, I'd use as an example just to have a kind of less charged counterexample, something like soul cycle, that sort of more explicitly secular wellnessy. Um, I do think the marketing and the, the, the conversation and the language around it um, is, is different or at least prioritizes things differently. Um, which is to say, I'm doing this sort of so that I can do these other things so that I can have this life, which sort of often, I think more often than not, boils down to certain fantasies of attainment, achievement, uh, a kind of optimization in a certain way. And I, I think about like going to spin classes and being told like while we're on the bikes, the kind of motivational speaking is like, this is for you. This is for your this is your time. This is your space. Like other people who need things from you, shut them out. And, I, and this is quite explicit. I remember thinking like, like I'm, I have like Ayn Rand is my soul cycle instructor right now. And obviously it's an extreme example, but I think it's a kind of example that because it's so explicit about its goals, its sort of assumptions of the world, the ways in which it is expensive and branded and the kind of consumer fetish fits into it. I think that it's a it's sort of a telling example through which we can see all of these other trends going on. So I am absolutely not against uh, any kind of spiritual practice uh, done um, 
whatsoever. Um, but I am suspicious of ways in which these practices have been commodified and kind of turned into the equivalent, like as the sort of spiritual equivalent of like the New Yorker tote bag you carry on the subway. There's a tendency, I think, in culture to self-segregate and spend time only with those who share your demographic or share your worldview. And I guess in my sort of fantasy of religion from a previous age, that was not the case in that, let's say, synagogue had the potential to bring people together across class difference or across a certain amount of theological difference or age difference. I mean, I grew up going to synagogue every Friday night and Saturday, and I saw a lot of people over the age of 60. And that's probably less common amongst young people today who don't go to uh, church or synagogue or, or mosque. So how do we get people to share sort of more diversity of diversity? Like, I think now diversity means something very specific. <laughs> um, especially maybe let's even say political diversity, like talking to people that you think are wrong or crazy. I sort of see religion now as, or even organized religion as, as following the path of your politics predict what church or synagogue you go to. And I personally, I understand that. I appreciate the need that that serves, but I, I actually prefer the older model. So I guess my question is, where do you fit in that, you know, that trend in terms of your, what you see and also kind of what what can be done to enhance the sense of there's something about a religious obligation or a human good of encountering people that do not reinforce your worldview, the anti-bubble effect. I think that's right. Um, I mean, the caveat, of course, is that, you know, religious institutions are not they're not free of the kind of self-sorting that people do and never have been, whether it's sort of racial segregation in churches, uh, famously once called Martin Luther King Jr. called them the um, most segregated hour in America is, is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, it's true that even if you go to your neighborhood church, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood that looks different than going to a church in a, in a neighborhood that's not so wealthy. So um, certainly I don't think that there's a fantasy where like going, simply going to your place of worship, even your local place of worship will kind of create this sort of imagined sense where we are, we are next to all different kinds of people. But I do think it helps. I do think, you know, going to the place in your neighborhood, um, both for religious worship and, and for kind of other forms of civic life is just generally a good, I think, uh, this is why in my kind of political life, I am a great believer in, in civic institutions, in unifying civic institutions, in places that you just go in your neighborhood, because uh, whether for, for practical or, or purposes or otherwise, because you have to, where you have to be around and exposed to and in dialogue with and in community with. Um, people who have in common with you the fact that they are just part of your community. This is why I believe in cities. This is why I love living in a city, um, because this is just sort of part of the life that you live and, and, and have to live um, because you're just around other people. So I, I think that in general, the, um, the more robust our 
civic institutions, particularly at that like local communal level of, you know, you need your birth certificate and you're going to be waiting in line with city, at city hall um, or, or what have you to neighborhood centers to public transport. You know, these are just the, the more ways that we are forced to interact with our community, uh, the better for the community, I think. So is consumerism and the age of the selfie part of or a big part of what's driving polarization? And the antidote then is to spend less time on the internet? Like, is this a kind of... The antidote is absolutely to spend less time on the internet. We should all delete Twitter off our phones. I'm addicted, so I can't. But I, I wish I could. Um, I, I do think that there there are goods. There are goods to being able to connect with people who, who share certain loves, certain interests, to make friends with people outside of your geographic boundary. Like, I do, I do think that is a good. And so we should not maybe delete Twitter altogether, but perhaps to be deleting Twitter. I found you on the internet. I think, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there are I, I found Susanna, Susanna Black connected me to you. Yep. And I met her on the internet. Um, I met Susanna Black on the internet too. Um, so I, I do think that, that 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 it can be good in the right spirit as part of a kind of broader life. I think meeting, let's 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 say we should delete Twitter off our phones and keep it on our laptops and use it prudentially and with discernment to reach out to other people and become friends in interesting and unexpected ways. And then we should go and touch grass and be in our community and meet people in other ways as well. We've talked a bunch about truth. I'm open to to the idea of there being a truth, but I also am a poet and a person drawn to aesthetic experience. And for me, those aspects open up truth not as propositional or not merely propositional, but also truth as what in Heidegger's terms would be called eventful or disclosive. It's something possibly more primary than what language can say. And, you know, when I read the Bible in particular or the Talmud, I don't really read it on first blush as as a text that has truth claims, though some are implicit. I read it as a story and as an aesthetic experience and yet I still think it's a better one <laughs> than Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Harry Potter, um, or Bronze Age Pervert. And I'm wondering what you think of the uh, sort of an argument almost from aesthetics for the importance of tradition or the importance of ancient practices and texts rather than an argument from propositional truth. As a as a Jew, I'm sort of less bound by creed and dogma as foundational to my identity, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Oh, I'm 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 full, fully with you. Um perhaps like I think I'm more instinctively with you uh and I'm sort of 100% instinctively with you and like 95% intellectually with you. Uh which is to say that I I think that there are ways that we can access or avenues to truth, let's say, that that do reflect the flat, the limitations of human language, of human categories, uh, which is, again, where, where my talk earlier of sort of epistemic humility come, comes in, that um, I do think the fullness of, of whatever truth we have is beyond language and beyond particular proposition. Uh, I do think that there are ways in which our aesthetic experiences, our experiences of the true, the beautiful, and the good can help us apprehend truth without necessarily being able to kind of 
boil it down into a set of truth claims, even as I, I do think that like truth claims are often like good and useful as well. Um, so, so certainly I think that a sense in which both language and as, and particularly language as a sort of function of the way that human beings are with one another will always fall short of encapsulating sort of encapsulating the, the totality of whatever it is. So let's hear it for non-propositional truth alongside the uh, truth claims and also for poetry and art because, because they, they do, I, I, I'm drawn enough to the idea that they do help. And a, a big part of religious life is ritual. I guess that's also kind of a modern term, but it, you allude to that in the title of your book, Strange Rites. And ritual is a practice as opposed to a statement, though I, I guess rituals do involve statements, but they don't have to. And when they do re- involve statements, our relationship to those statements is very different than in other contexts where those statements are not ritualized. Now, ritual, I feel like it's been getting a lot of play in from a lot of different corners of cultural commentary. One thinker that I, I want to think more about in relationship to your work is the sort of center-right pundit uh, Bruno McCase. Or McCase. Um, he wrote a book called History Has Begun, and he argues that American life, but especially American political life, is governed by virtuality. And of course, technology has increased the the sense in which we participate virtually. But he thinks this is actually a good thing because more virtuality means that we allow ourselves to simulate fighting with one another, but not actually tearing each other apart. Sort of in real life, we have more in common and you should ignore what people do in their online profiles. That's just kind of what he calls LARPing, live action role playing. I guess another another phrase that that's, goes with that that people throw around a lot is virtue signaling. But just sort of the sense of like, we can shrug our shoulders at this. It looks a lot worse than it really is. But this is just a kind of catharsis. And at the end of the day, it's a catharsis that actually binds us. So just thinking about ritual, I would say there's one one strain of thoughts that says, Ritual is insincere, and that's a good thing, because the point was never to be sincere. By definition, you're performing a ritual, like the way an actor performs a role. And then there's another, maybe older critique of ritual that's saying, you don't really believe this, this is hypocritical. You know, how can you do this when your heart isn't in it? So just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like LARPing as a phenomenon as a, a not in the narrow sense of like people dressing up t- to reenact the civil war, but more just as a sort of frame for thinking about culture right now, be it on the left or the right. I, th- I mean, I, I do think that I think that there's both good and bad to to the phenomenon of LARPing, uh, which I which I do take, and and I actually like the the language and I uh, of love LARPing to talk about that. I think, you know, I would much rather us fight on Twitter than you know kill each other in the streets, and yet. I think it is also true that um, there are ways in which having commitments that require us to, whether it's protesting in the cold or occasionally, you know, in the wide broad scope of human history, uh, fight and die for what we believe in as and when it is actually necessary. Um, 
is part of life too. And I think that virtuality can be perhaps at its best uh, a means of kind of purging tension through Twitter wars. Uh, and at its worst can be a divorce from the, the real lived consequences of what it means to believe certain things to function in certain ways. Um, I think ritual in particular uh, of both the religious kind and let's say the Twitter flame war kind um, does does allow us to kind of be in co- spend time in certain intense ways of being that are uh, not possible to to live out in one's quote unquote daily or ordinary life. Uh, and I think this is sort of true of like getting very mad at someone on Twitter ritualistically and sort of expunging whatever uh, bad social feelings we have in that way. But I mean, there's, but there's a sort of converse there, which is what happens on a church on a Sunday is a, a kind of ritual that's also entering in a different, I would argue, in, in my quietly Christian realist way, preferable, certainly preferable to Twitter flame wars, way of, of being in reality, of being open to the fullness of reality. And I think that you don't, you don't actually have to fully believe in every moment at, it is, it is impossible to be fully present and fully faithful every single time you go to church. Um, maybe saints can do it. I certainly can't. Sometimes I'm distracted and thinking about errands or laundry. Um, but I think that the act of participation um, fosters a certain kind of way of being, way of thinking. When I affirm this, I'm reminded of it, even if I'm not always fully present in church. Being in church reminds me of the important stuff and kind of breaks into my own selfish uh, concerns uh, by virtue of that presence. And I think that 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 kind of way in which I am being transformed through ritual, even even when I'm not the perfect participant, is something that ritual does well. It kind of breaks us open. It breaks us out of daily life. And I think conversely, the kind of LARPing that happens in in purely Twittery spaces, it does also shape us and form us in some ways. I think we are, we become, we don't simply get out all our anger at, you know, the bad people on Twitter when we yell at the bad people on Twitter, but we sort of are molded through this action into a kind of alienation and a kind of alienation from other people combined with sort of that sweet, sweet rage flowing through our veins. And I think in that way, it it can be a, it could be a ritual that is bad for us. Where I think that I, I, I do think, you know, LARPing again is preferable to street fights. Sure. As a form of cathartic violence, but that doesn't mean that like forms of cathartic violence are good. To the person who says, I don't want to go to this protest, and let's pretend we don't know the content of the protest, um, because I feel insincere doing it. I feel that, or I fe- it feels ineffective uh, in terms of my theory of change, or I see that this is you know, more about showing up to be seen as the kind of person that goes to a protest rather than you know, actually making a difference or whatever. I could I could imagine a response that says sort of don't worry about feeling insincere. That's not you're mis you're misunderstanding what the category of this thing is. This is a ritual. <laughs> and as a ritual, it has a power and a value in and of itself, regardless of whether you f- feel 
insincere or whatever you feel. So you should just do it. Well, do you, are you partial to that, to that response? I, I am partial to that. I mean, I, I, I think, I think um, perhaps in an ideal world, we, we go and we don't post about it. Um, if, and especially if we're, we're not fully sure yet, maybe we, we just show up and listen and try and keep it off Instagram. And what about the person who says it's not a total ritual or a complete ritual without the Instagram post, sort of that, that, that extends the ritual and that the, the loss is to post about it. And that's okay too, because it's sort of getting the message out or whatever, or, you know, you using yourself as an example uh, of the witness. <laughs> And the person says, well, that feels a little narcissistic to me. I don't know. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, everyone feels that way eventually, but you get used to it after the, the thousandth post. How, how is that different, let's say, than a discomfort that one would have with any ritual? <laughs> and the argument that in, insincerity is, a, is, is tolerable. I think that being present in a community and being open to what is happening in a community, what is happening in a particular place in a particular time with, with other people in dialogue is, is a distinct phenomenon from the curation of a personal brand. And I think that it may be that through the use of these, this thing called the personal brand that I think is largely bad, we may do some good. It may be in some some capacity like worthwhile to to say like we you know we 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 are advocating for this issue and we want we want to kind of get that word out but i think it will always be tainted in a way by the the consciousness of what these these forms of self-branding are are for um i think that there's that there you know the good is is compromised and that doesn't mean that it might not be the right thing to do in a particular case. And again, in this, you know, it depends on, on the hypothetical nature of the protest involved and the issue and the visibility of the issue and, and so many other factors. But I would say that I would be instinctively suspicious of the Instagram post about it. I would be wary that it the good would outweigh the bad but not entirely closed off to a good argument why in one particular instance it might be the right thing to do. If if Jesus had come and, and died today and Paul had to write those letters to the Romans and the Galatians and so on, would he be doing it on social media? I think it would be the, it would be the DMs. <laughs> Direct messages. The group, yeah, the group chat, man. It's, it's all the group chat. I, I do. I do think rather. Um, so WhatsApp groups, but not Facebook posts. Maybe in a non-account. I don't know. Got, it's got to be an anonymous account. Is the is the the critique isn't then of branding? It's of self-branding. Like Jesus stays pure by not saying, "Hey, I'm the Messiah." Let let Paul let Paul be the the head of marketing. But it's it's wrong for 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 Jesus to do that for himself. I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say whether or not Jesus should have, should have a social media if he came back now. I think there, there's too many uh, unknowns in that, uh, in that example. But I do think that, I think that in a world, 
particularly this contemporary world where so much of our economic and social capital comes from the way in which we manage ourselves like a consumer brand. Um, I would imagine, trying not to fall into any like inadvertent heresies here, um, that the use of a compromise of, of like such a compromised medium for the expression of truth would be something I would be very surprised by if it worked. Um, again, not ruling it out, but extremely, extremely suspicious of the idea. Let me ask you one final question, just continuing this sort of potentially heretical line of thought. So uh, one of the great heretics in the history of Judaism is a man named Shabtai Tzvi, who claimed to be the Messiah. And then um, in, he was captured by the Ottoman Empire and he was asked if he could, he was told you can either convert to Islam or you can die a martyr's death. And he chose to convert to Islam, after which most of his followers were quite disappointed and felt that he had been a charlatan. But some maintained their faith in him and he created a theology whereby he said, that sort of it's easy to be a martyr in the narrow sense of the word of dying because you get to go out with a bang and preserve your reputation or your brand, if you will. But I am the true martyr because I am doing the, the most hypocritical thing you can do, the thing that most tests my followers, and that is ruining my reputation. What, <laughs> what do you think of that idea, the idea that sort of um, one could martyr oneself not to sanctify the name, not to maintain a purity, but actually that a higher self-sacrifice is a willingness to let yourself be seen as the opposite of, of good or pure. Mm. I'm persuaded by that. I find that very persuasive. I do think, you know, my when I, when I think about the kind of the good life, I often think of um, the end of Middlemarch where Dorothea Brooke is described as sort of living this this quiet, I don't remember the exact lines, but it's like a quiet life and an unremembered grave. And that the the great saints or the of the world, the people who have lived well, are these people who's who have lived these these good lives, lives that are not full of dramatic reversal and renown, um, but are 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 lived well and quietly. So I don't I don't necessarily um, think that there's a hypocrisy is the way to true martyrdom, but I do think that the um the quiet good life or the life lived in reality is a site of the quest for the good life as much of, or perhaps even more than the kind of great fire and brimstone existence. And I think insofar as that there is a calling there to attempt to live one's life well uh, and to, to know and love and act out the good in one's, in one's, communal existence, wherever that may be. Um, I do think that that's a useful starting point and perhaps even a, a, a preferable starting point to like, I don't know, talking about it a top-down integralism, for example. Well, I hope our listeners will be inspired by this podcast to go out and do something real in person and not just tweet about this, though Though your your tweets are also welcome. And thank you, Tara. Thank you for having me on. 
Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.